0: Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Bellegarde, and joining me today is Brett Abrams. Brett is the Executive Vice President of R&D at Magnolia Neurosciences. Before that, he was Head of Preclinical Biology at Ovid Therapeutics, an Assistant Professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and a Visiting Assistant Professor at UCLA. He did his postdoc with Dan Geschwind at UCLA and his PhD at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Can you tell us about what you're doing at Magnolia?
1: Sure. So something that's really not as well appreciated around chemotherapy is that there is often, you know, in upwards of 50% of individuals who have cancer and then go on to have chemotherapy experience different kinds of neurodegenerative disorders, right? So whether that is chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy or sippin or chemo-induced cognitive deficits sometimes called brain fog, these are big problems and and, and sometimes the discomfort with the peripheral neuropathy actually has people ceasing chemotherapy or you know, not dosing as high as they would otherwise. And so it's not only an unfortunate side effect, it's actually can really interfere with the prescribed treatment regimen and give rise to all kinds of problems there. So the way Magnolia thinks about this is that Sipin, chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, and that's the last time I'll say that. But so Sipin is this very unique form of neurodegeneration where you know exactly when the onset of disease will begin. And that's, of course, very different to a situation like Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease or something like this, where pathogenesis will be happening over years. So any kind of preventative strategy would be you know, very difficult from a clinical trial perspective to institute. And so the hope is that through developing medicines that would be useful in preventing and or treating Sipin, that this is actually would be a bridge towards other kinds of neurodegeneration. Yeah. So that's what we're doing at at, at Magnolia. And maybe maybe I'll just give you a little bit of backstory just for, for context. So the company is coming on to three years old. It'll be three years old in September, and it was founded out of MD Anderson. Jim Ray and Phil Jones are, are the founders of the company. And then Accelerator Life Sciences looked at what they were doing, got really excited about it and put together a Series A with an investor syndicate. And so $30 million Series A with investors, including AbbVie and Arch and Lilly and J&J, um, also Pfizer and Wuxi and others. And so it's a, a really nice syndicate you know, that's supporting our work and, and moving things forward. But then we were lucky enough on top of that to receive a $20 million non-dilutive grant from an organization called CEPRIT. So that's a Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas, which is funding everything oncology-related and sees and SIPPIN as a, a major unmet need in the space, something that, that we're hoping to change at Magnolia.
0: So what's the plan for clinical trials, and, and how, how does this differ from typical clinical trials in neurodegeneration?
1: Sure. So we, we are a preclinical company currently, but we're you know doing our very best to get to the clinic. Hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. But I think in a typical oncology trial, uh, you would typically start in cancer patients. There would be a standard of care and you would be looking at your new therapeutic over top of that. Typically at this point in some either genetically defined or histologically defined cancer subtype, right? And so, I mean, I think that's an interesting contrast to where we're at in terms of neurodegenerative and neuro disorders of all type in that, except for in the rare disease space, there's really virtually no genetic markers to kind of subtype on the basis of mechanism and have that precision medicine approach. Um, that, that's certainly true for SIPPIN right now. And our initial work will be in healthy volunteers to demonstrate safety. And that stands in contrast to what's typically done in oncology.
0: How has COVID impacted Magnolia?
1: That's a, an interesting question. So we're virtual company and, and kind of organize that by design, right? So with the idea that not having to invest in infrastructure allows us to spend those R&D dollars in, in other ways so from a kind of organizational perspective you know we've been doing this for years this way and have people in multiple different states work with different partners in you know all all across the globe and so it's really status quo from that perspective you know I think for many companies you know, particularly those that were initiating phase one trials it's been a very difficult time for them we weren't in that position, but but hope that as things hopefully improve over the coming months and, and year, that when we do get to the clinic that those safety studies will run smoothly. The other thing, the amount of biotech investment and activity over the last year, things were crazy in 2019. And it was like this can't get any busier or hotter. I don't know what, what to call it, but but I think 2020 actually did become busier and people are are even more tuned into biotech. And so access to expertise, access to different research organizations for assays and different studies has has become much harder. So we needed to plan more and it's very clearly been reflected in cost
0: of services.
1: Different organizations have responded to the demand with an increase in, in costs, which of course makes total sense.
0: Have you seen big impacts on turnaround time?
1: I think that, you know, once a contract has been secured and you sort of have access to, you know, the service provider that you want, I think that things turn around typically in a pretty standard fashion. It's more the case, at least in in our experience, that, you know, the two and three month uh, lead time you need to sort of initiate a study is now six or plus months to, to get access in some cases.
0: It's really interesting. You know, I hear about supply chain problems from a lot of people. A number of companies have difficulties getting 10X uh, reagent kits and so on. For outsourced preclinical studies, there are so many things that, that go into it. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine that they wouldn't be impacted by the supply chain problems.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, really, even having pipette tips, right? or gloves for use in the lab.
0: It, it is a
1: wonder that all of this stuff keeps moving forward in the face of you know, all of the difficulties this last year.
0: And has, has COVID had any impact on where people at Magnolia choose to live?
1: <laughs> so I'm typically in Manhattan and uh, love it there and spent the first three months of the pandemic in, in Manhattan. So like, I guess March to June. And then my wife was ready to murder me in our small New York City apartment. And so we went to Pennsylvania out in the Poconos for some time. We were there, I guess, June through December. And now we're out in Texas. So it'll it'll be interesting to see, you know, the effect. You know, everyone talks about remote work now and, and what does that mean for various industries. And it'll be interesting to see if that persists and and the flexibility that some people have if that stays around or not. And you know, on the flip side, I love I love New York. And so I really hope that the city can sort of respond to some of these challenges over the last year that it's faced.
0: And do you expect post COVID that Magnolia will go back to the, the, the few employees there are go back to being in person?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think we have never shown up all in one place on any regular basis. So we've got people in, in Seattle and in Houston and Long Island and uh, North Carolina. You know, it, we used to be quite accustomed to getting on a plane and having board meetings in one of those places and meeting between that. Who knows where we'll be in a year, right? Does that still make sense? Just the economics of it? Is that a good use of, of resources? And I think there's certainly like, value being together in the room with people. The remote does have its limitations, but it's just not clear what the right balance is, I think, at this point, for me.
0: So before Magnolia, you were at a company called Ovid. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So Ovid Therapeutics, also neuroscience-focused, but as opposed to looking at neurodegeneration, it was all neurodevelopmental. In contrast to the large, very common indications that Magnolias is, is pursuing, Ovid um, uh, is very much orphan neurology, and so we would look at genetically defined uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. The lead program was work in Angelman syndrome, and there's also a lot of work in Dravet, a, a rare form of epilepsy, and it was, you know, it was a fantastic experience there that really dovetailed from my academic work the lab, my training, and then my independent lab at Albert Einstein was really focused on identifying genes that give rise to neurological disorders, and then as opposed to treating clinical entities to try and apply the genetic insights to go in in a mechanistically appropriate fashion. And so that was the premise of Ovid as well, of going and, and using genetics to Devise treatment approaches and develop those as medicines. And so I was in very early at Ovid, which was just incredibly exciting, and got to see multiple programs advance, including the partnership that they had with Takeda, that ultimately just resulted in transaction of that asset, TAC935 for Dravet syndrome and other epileptic encephalopathies, transaction to have. To, ca- to cater, reclaim full rights to the drug to develop further, but tremendous opportunity to go from academia where, you know, I had sort of this very defined niche research interest and then move pretty seamlessly into a company developing therapeutics for that same kind of, broadly speaking, that same population of individuals.
0: Can you tell us about that transition?
1: Yeah, it was terrific. I think I love my time in academia. I treasure it. But for me, I think what really has me, you know, jump out of bed in the morning is the ability to be doing something pretty different on a regular basis. And so there was this uh, conflict in my mind in my academic life, this tension between needing to go deep and having that ability to pursue multiple things at once and kind of move nimbly and industry in that respect is a really fun fit particularly in magnolia where a typical day will have me moving from medicinal chemistry to biology to toxicology to intellectual property management to bioinformatics (laughs) to bioinformatics yeah absolutely like so and and having that breadth of experience and and being able to bounce around between it is really fun as well as of course the direct interaction with the investors and you know the fundraising element of things which i think is not absent from academia of course right you have to you know work very hard to bring in funding but it's just a a different process Uh, i would say a less social process in academia in some ways that i prefer
0: what surprised you the most? what what misconception did you have as a as a professor?
1: I can't say that i I was surprised by too much. you know at its best, people working to develop drugs are super smart and doing really good science, right and with enormous resources and a great deal of passion, which is really very similar to the ideal situation in academia, right? And those experiences on in each of those situations are fantastic. And as expected, you've got like the, the range of abilities across people at, at all places, right? So it, it has been a, a very nice thing. I think that maybe a, a surprise and something that is worth thinking about for folks who are trying to think about their future career path is I think that there are more paths in science than one could possibly imagine. And so I certainly remember, particularly as I was finishing up my PhD, really struggling to see anything outside of the next path in the academic ladder. And I think that's a shame. I think institutions are doing better now at trying to make people aware of what you can do if you're passionate about science and you know have a PhD or, or an advanced degree, but it's just, there are so many different paths forward for you. And so it would be great for people to, to explore them. And I think the more difficult in COVID, but certainly in the pre-COVID time, the events around town, were common in, in and around the big universities, being able to interact with venture people who were just starting biotechs or, you know, communication firms that run a whole gamut of different things for different organizations. You know, it's, it's really just endless, all the kinds of different functions within pharma, Wall Street. It's, it's a long list. And so it's a shame that people don't have greater exposure to some of those options.
0: What, what experiences do you think most prepared you for the things you're doing now?
1: So I think I really like to kind of, you know, I think science can sometimes be like surfing, right?
0: You definitely lived in LA for for a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Terrible surfer, the worst. (laughs) <laughs> but but it is it is similar right like you have to jump in and kind of work with what comes your way and try and make something of it and so i really like that kind of dynamic movement i know that, i mean that probably sounds a little ridiculous but the chaos of different people with their different expectations and requirements right so you have physicians that are looking for new ways to treat their patients you have business people who are seeking a return on their investment, the public market, sometimes hungry for news that will send your stock skyrocketing, or crashing, plus the actual data and, and kind of striking a balance between all of those elements together with safety. Of course, you know, you're developing drugs, you want them to be safe, you want them to be, you know, beneficial to the population. Regulatory concerns. It's, it's just a really interesting blend of competing pressures. I often think like it is amazing that any single drug exists. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. And, and the fact that a year and a half into COVID that we actually have multiple vaccines, multiple therapeutics, all of them with like really impressive benefits. It, it is just mind-boggling, and I think, wow, how lucky are we that in the face of all this complexity, that these new medicines are emerging, and it's just, it's a it's a real gift.
0: Yeah, I think the progress on the vaccine front uh, certainly far outstripped almost everyone's expectations. You know, it makes me wonder how much faster can we move on other things? Here, obviously, there was a great... <laughs> global, you know, societal impetus to get this as quickly as possible. But of course, things like Alzheimer's are also a pretty big deal. Are there practices in the industry that you think could be changed to to move things along faster?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a lot of exciting things in the works. So in terms of like therapeutic modalities, right, all, all of the genetic approaches that are emerging now, have enormous potential, you know, I think not only for the rare single gene disorders, but also for non-genetically defined disease. If you can identify a central mediator of pathogenesis that is not necessarily tied to a result of a genetic mutation, but maybe a consequence of any number of different genetic and or environmental contributors, you know, you can target that in the same way as you would a single gene disorder. So the technology certainly needs work in terms of delivery and manufacturing capabilities, but I think the the future is there. And you know, you couple that with AI that is not just on the drug discovery front, but in terms of the ability to to screen, you know, work up high throughput assays, interpret the data. It's a really exciting time. And, and, you know, like something I think that people don't talk about because it's kind of like the air we're all breathing, but what, I don't know, is the internet 30 years old? Because I remember being in college and staring at web pages that just had like the name of a company and their mailing address, right? Those were the websites that like that Coke and GM and, and different places had. And so the fact that, you know, we can even do this podcast across the country from one another. And exchange ideas globally in a moment with almost no infrastructure. that's a pretty incredibly transformative technology.:
0: I totally agree. I mean I, I really wonder how far we are from uh, mainstream biotech companies you know making payments in cryptocurrency and things like this. <laughs> It'll be interesting if we can revisit this episode in 30 years and just see because I have no idea what things will look like.
1: I remember so like in in my academic life I would have a lot of interaction with families you know because I was looking at these rare genetic disorders that were not mendelian but you know you would have a deletion or duplication of a you know different chromosome region and that would increase your risk for a variety of outcomes by eightfold and you know genetic counselors, it's not the typical scenario that they're faced with where it's kind of like a probabilistic risk, you know, and so you have the parent who's a carrier coming in and being counseled that maybe they should terminate the pregnancy as a consequence of their offspring having inherited this, right? What was very interesting is they would come to me and say, you know, like we've heard about CRISPR, you know, is that something on the horizon that, you know, might be able to help our children? This is probably like seven years ago. And I said, like, absolutely not. Like, this is just tremendously powerful laboratory tool, but medicines will not emerge from this in our lifetime. How dumb does that sound today, right?
0: Yeah, there's a, 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 what is it? Is it one or two CRISPR babies in China?
1: Right. That
0: didn't go down the way people might
1: have wanted it to. It was certainly short-sighted to move forward without a broad consensus of how to do it.
0: Well, it certainly didn't end well for the uh, researcher either, right?
1: No, no, it didn't. But, you know, like the ex vivo correction of some really pathogenic genetic variant, like that, that's incredible, right? There's a lot to wrestle with around how to employ the technology, but it's going to happen. It's going to get used. And that's really exciting because I think You know, having spoken to so many parents with children who just have these really, really devastating disorders, it's easy to forget how difficult some people's lives are because of these really challenging disorders. You don't appreciate your health until it's challenged.
0: What are you most excited about in biotech?
1: So I made this sort of contrast between where oncology is today and where neuroscience is today. and every year we are further and further away from that psychiatry or neurology as a black box. There will be a time, and it's perhaps already here, where you know, the notion of schizophrenia or autism as a clinical entity are as naive as cancer as an individual entity. And you, know, you will go in and biological markers will dictate how you're treated, will predict your response rate to different interventions. I mean, that's really, really amazing if you kind of contrast it with, you know, electroshock for depression that was common practice 50, 60 years ago, probably still used in some places today. And if you go back 100 years in the United States, straitjacket and imprisonment, those were your treatments for severe psychiatric conditions.
0: There's a, a medical museum in, in Copenhagen that has a room focused on psychiatry with straight jackets, uh, electroshock machines, padded boxes for people with epilepsy.
1: No, it's terrible. But you know, you take all of these technological innovations on the drug discovery, drug development side, and you marry that with what's happening in genetics, genomics, and the resulting ability to parse out the underlying biology. And I think it's, it's a hard road because, of course, the brain isn't accessible in the same way as many tumors are. And that, of course, adds a lot of complexity, a lot of challenges. But we're moving fast, incredibly fast in all kinds of good directions.
0: What's a mainstream view in neuroscience that you think is mistaken?
1: You know, I think something that most folks working in neuro would agree is that Animal models are lacking in a number of ways, non predictive, oftentimes don't address key species differences that are critically important for the disorder. And yet, I think there's this attachment to want to see benefit in these animal models for different therapeutic approaches. And I think that that's a, a real problem, something that needs to be addressed, right? You know, I think an interesting story I was speaking to someone who was you know, doing some, I would say very pioneering work using iPSCs to try and get past these issues of the lack of utility of animal models, right? Typically mouse models. And they laid out very clearly all of the ways that these iPSCs would overcome and identify new targets that would never be identified with traditional models. And so then the question, Posed was, you know, that's great. What happens after you've got your hypothesis, you're developing your therapeutic? What do you do if you see benefit in that cell based disease model? And the answer was, well, you you go and you test it in a mouse. To me, like that really captures thinking within the neuroscience community, particularly within industry. There's both the recognition that these models are not serving us. But a, an absolute requirement that there's benefit. It is sad for me to think about how many programs have died because you know an animal didn't run through a maze more quickly, and how many programs actually progressed because there was some benefit in one of these models that is known to be non-predictive. And I think in the same way that big ideas in academic Academic circles, you know, really gather steam and attract resources and interests at the expense of more marginal ideas. The same is absolutely true in industry, right? So if you start to to set up these constraints that really define a path forward, the availability to do things differently is really diminished. And I think that the clearest example of that is the amyloid hypothesis in Alzheimer's disease, right?
0: We'll never die. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Incredible science gave rise to the hypothesis, right? Amazing, beautiful. It demanded to be evaluated clinically. And I think, though, we're at the point where the most elegant explanation for the clinical failures, you know, given that all these studies in the clinic have been well, well-powered and well-designed, The simplest explanation is that amyloid based approaches are insufficient to give rise to clinical benefit. Essential that that was tested, but the degree to which it was invested in really undercut investment elsewhere. Even in pharma, where there are billions and billions of dollars to be had for R&D, you you can't spend any one of those dollars twice. It's a shame.
0: And the ROI on that R&D spending in pharma has been atrocious and and below the internal rate of return for a number of years now. Right. So you can't can't afford things like that.
1: No, and I mean, this is kind of a, a bit of a non sequitur, but I think something that's very attractive about work in industry, and there's some caveats to this, but if you're in academia and you're working on a specific signaling pathway, then that specific signaling pathway is very, very important, regardless of what the universe thinks of that signaling pathway, right? You know, it's important because that's your niche, that's what you know, and that's what you will do forevermore, typically, or often, unless you're in sort of a more platform technology-oriented space. And I think something that I really like in my current role in the startup-y biotech venture world is that if you can test a hypothesis efficiently and show it to not merit additional investment, you move on. And I think, you know, life is pretty short. And so kind of grinding it out with things that don't have promise is a trap that I think we can all fall into quickly. And so there are plenty of examples where things linger, people don't like to sort of kill stuff. And It's always hard to know when the end is right. But conceptually, I think in industry, you know, having these sort of go no go decisions to really try and maximize where your time is spent and maximize your ability to get, you know, medicines to patients is the right way to go.
0: I guess related to that, with new technologies comes. More degrees of freedom in terms of design and analysis, and more rope to hang oneself. So, one thing we've seen a number of times in literature is single cell studies, where the group may come in with a strong preformed hypothesis and they find support for it in the tea leaves. Although, when you look at it more objectively, it it simply doesn't fall out. Following on your comments about in vivo validation, to me it seems if you could stratify patient progression genetically by some some haplotype or eqtl or something like this and you additionally have in vitro rescue and a nice ipsc system or something like this the genetics gives you that kind of systems level like organismal validation and and yeah i mean you don't have as good a readout you know you may only know when did this patient perish you know but but at the end of the day that's one of the things you care most about, right, is how do you uh, put that off for longer? One thing we see a lot in the genetic space is a lot of work looking at risk, which is very, very important. And, and so there are a lot of de- you know case control uh, data sets out there and so on. But we see a lot fewer well-powered studies looking at progression. And I mean, in my mind, in the drug development world, I mean, that that's really more What you care about, right? Because the patient has the disease. (laughs) You're trying to treat it. You're not trying to stop them from getting it in the first place once they already have it.
1: Yeah. I think in a development context, progression is really hard, especially if it is slow. It's kind of like if your dynamic range is limited, looking for a change over top of that is really hard to pick up. And I know that that has been very difficult in say Huntington's disease, as well as the genetics are understood, trying to demonstrate that some intervention actually has a slowing of the disease progression is really hard, but was very clear in SMA, for example, where it's much faster and much less variable, at least within certain populations, right?
0: Although for purposes of target identification, insofar as... The variability may have a genetic basis that, that could be helpful. But 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 certainly I take your point for, for purposes of development. It's a, it's a pain.
1: Yeah, like on the target identification front, you're absolutely right. Like identifying these modifiers that could alter progression and then in themselves be therapeutic targets. I think there's enormous promise there.
0: If only the data sets uh, existed in greater number. Right.
1: No, but I mean, it it is amazing just if you just think of how many genomes plus associated clinical data are out there and the degree to which they're accessible. It's just amazing. Uh, You know, like I remember this sequencing plasmids in grad school, you know, and being really excited about like a 750 base pair read. And I'm not a thousand years old.
0: Technology moves fast. (laughs) It does.
1: It does. I mean, I guess grad school is 15 years ago, but it's not that long. What do things look like in 15 years from now? I think it's very clear that whole genome sequencing is going to find its way into clinical practice. Sort of being bolder, you know, what role does like epigenetic profiling across multiple tissue types, you know, does that inform either, you know, diagnostics or or kind of treatment benefit. I think something that I'm really excited about is taking patient materials. You know, so like I think some if we go back to the oncology example, the ability to access tumors and profile them and understand their biology on an individual to individual basis has opened up, up all kinds of possibilities, right? Harder to do that in neuroscience. We obviously don't have access to to the tissue that we're interested in. And so iPSC is enormously valuable to create really elegant models of that tissue that are from individuals, right? But the problem there is it's an enormous amount of work developing an iPSC line and, and multiple clones from each individual to have like sort of good reproducibility. It's not that you're going to run a trial, develop ipsc lines from all of the thousand people that you enroll and do that across multiple points across the truck right but if you could take blood cells have some kind of very simple differentiation to assay something that was both biologically meaningful to the disease but also individualized and you know use that kind of technology to recruit who those responders might be for your particular therapeutic. Determine within the context of your trial how people are progressing. Get an early read, perhaps in vitro, of whether or not what you're doing is actually a benefit. Like if you can figure out ahead of running a massive trial who's likely to respond, and then actually once you're in, whether that's happening i think that's really important and so technologies in that space are are i think of real interest to me
0: and i'm no stem cell biologist you know this is speculation but i certainly have seen how how rapidly the technologies progressed in in so many other areas certainly today the idea of creating iPSCs from a thousand uh, trial participants is is absurd But will it be in 10 years, 20 years? I mean, will we have, you know, automated mechanized uh, approaches that will be pretty good at this? I don't know.
1: That's absolutely possible. The one thing that technology cannot compress is time. You can't compress gestation, you know, in animal models. You just, you know, have to let the animals breed. If you need to dose animals for a safety study for six months, then it's six months, right? And I think the same true is in an iPSC context. If you want, you know, to look at mature neurons, at least historically, then that's a six-month process. But there's no reason that technology could not overcome that hurdle.
0: I mean, synthetic biology invades uh, stem cell biology. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, no, I was I was just going to go back to you know this thing I said to to some of these families that like CRISPR. As a therapeutic is never going to happen in our lifetime it's no less reasonable to say that i'm going to take one cell type and turn it into another cell type than to say i'm going to take one cell type of a particular maturation state and convert it into some altered maturation state without the time component built into that which is crazy right
0: yeah yeah i mean there's the maturation process which of course we know maturation is programmed right you know there's a a line of thought that aging is similarly programmed right and so if you basically kick those those programs into gear but do you have any any words of wisdom i guess if you could talk to um brett 15 years ago (laughs) what would you tell him other than you know invest in amazon or something like that
1: (laughs) yeah like so i think that work is full of all kinds of ups and downs, right? Of course, there's no magic wand that is gonna lead you down a path that is pure fun, but there is a lot of exciting stuff out there and a lot of really smart, interesting people that are kind of coming at science from all kinds of different perspectives. If you're hardworking enough to have completed an advanced degree, then you owe it to yourself and your future self to really explore what it is you want to be doing for the 30, 50 years ahead of graduation. Because there are a lot of options and that's a lot of time to be unhappy if you find yourself in the wrong one. And I guess, you know, to follow on that, what I would also say is that it is not a one-way street, right? So if you do go down a path and you find that that path is not to your liking then you should do yourself a favor and reinvent yourself because it's possible and it's fun
0: great thank you so much for for coming on the podcast it was it was fun really fun
1: well thank thanks for the invitation and uh this is great what you're doing